These are the words of God. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then our text today, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for how your word leads us, guides us, and trains us in righteousness. Father, we ask you now to re-speak the truth of your word to our hearts this day. By your Holy Spirit, O Lord, illuminate your holy word to our hearts. And as you do, Heavenly Father, we ask you to teach us what it truly means to show others the mercy we ourselves have freely received. We ask all this in the name of Jesus and everyone said together, Amen. Amen. In our beatitude today, as you see here, Jesus makes a promise. He makes a promise to a very specific group of people, namely the merciful. The merciful, Jesus promises, shall receive the lavish blessing of God's mercy. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not here preaching salvation by works. Jesus is not saying we merit God's mercy by giving mercy to other people. Rather, he is saying that giving mercy is to be a defining mark of one who will receive the blessing of mercy on the last day. In other words, he is saying that giving mercy is to be a defining mark of a Christian, one who by the mercy of God is destined for eternal glory. The difficulty with all this is we as people are not instinctively merciful. Instead, we are instinctively by nature selfish. We are instinctively self-focused, self-preoccupied, self-absorbed. Even as Christians whose hearts have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can and do struggle deeply with selfishness. The flesh, remaining sin, constantly aims to turn us inward on ourselves rather than, rather than outward in love for God and love for other people. 
In stark contrast, the subject of our beatitude, mercy, mercy is exclusively concerned with the good of other people. Paul Tripp and Tim Lane, in their excellent book, Relationships a Mess Worth Making, give the best, most comprehensive definition of mercy that I've ever come across. And in my preparation, I came across quite a few definitions. Uh, And this one, from my perspective, was the best and most comprehensive. Tripp and Lane write this. Mercy is the kind, sympathetic, and forgiving treatment of others that works to relieve their distress and cancel their debt. Or, mercy is compassion combined with forbearance and action. This, dear brothers and sisters, is the high calling of mercy. To be kind, to sympathize, to forbear, to forgive, and to work to relieve the distress of others. In this, God himself, God himself, our heavenly father, is our example. For Jesus exhorts us in Luke 6, 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So our beatitude today says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we think, okay, Jesus, I want to do that, (laughs) right? I want to be merciful, but how do I do that? And what does that look like practically? Well, thankfully, Jesus' words in Luke 6 that I just read provide the way forward. If we are to be merciful people, we must begin by considering the perfect example of our Heavenly Father and what it means that He is merciful. So this morning, if you're taking notes, I have three points. God's mercy, our mercy, and finally, the promised blessing. First, God's mercy. The Old and New Testaments reveal that one of God's essential attributes is that he is merciful. Properly understood, God's mercy is a function of his goodness. God in his very being and essence is completely and absolutely good. God's mercy is his goodness expressed in a specific direction. As Dr. Wayne Grudem explains, God's mercy means his goodness towards those in misery and distress. In Exodus 34, when God showed his glory to Moses, we read, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord The Lord, a God what? Merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. While some, while some may seek to pit the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament, saying that the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and the God of the Old is a God of judgment and wrath, any careful reading of the Bible will show that the theme of God's mercy pervades the entire storyline of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, God's justice and His mercy is on clear display. We don't have to, time to show this in any detail. However, a few examples will suffice to make this point clear. In Genesis, as a consequence of their sin of eating the forbidden fruit, you'll recall Adam and Eve became aware of their nakedness, and they felt ashamed. Genesis 3, we read that Yahweh, Yahweh God saw Adam and Eve in their distress, in their shame, and he acted. He acted by clothing them with garments of skins, likely skins from an animal that died, so that they could be clothed. Dear brothers and sisters, that is mercy. This incidentally points to Christ covering our shame through his sacrificial death on the cross. The story of Noah and the ark, that too is a story of mercy. God rescued Noah and his family from the floodwaters that covered the earth as an expression of his judgment. This too points to the gospel. God used the ark to save Noah. And through Christ and his death on the cross, God saved us from the floodwaters of his judgment because of our sins. Fast forward to the book of Exodus. God's people had been in Egypt for many years and enslaved for probably around 150 of those years when in Exodus 2 we read that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You then know the rest of the story of how God sent a deliverer, Moses, to rescue his people. You know the story well of the ten plagues and crossing the Jordan and manna and quail from heaven and how God brought his people miraculously into the land flowing with milk and honey. Brothers and sisters, that's mercy. That's mercy. Again, see the, the theme of God's people in misery and distress and God acting to rescue and to save. This clearly points forward to the cross as well. If we had time, we could look at other examples of God's mercy in the Old Testament. 
There are many more. Uh, just a few. I mean, the story of David and Goliath. What's that? But a story of God's mercy, of God delivering his people from their enemies, from the Philistines, through a boy with a sling and a rock. That's the mercy of God. God, through Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll recall, brought the exiled people of God back to the land to rebuild the temple and the walls. They were in exile, in distress. But God didn't just leave them there in exile, did he? Did he? But he brought them out. He saw them in their distress, brought them out, brought them back to the land. Again, much more could be said. It's not hard to see how living under the old covenant, King David could pen these words of praise in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and what? Mercy. Later in the same psalm, David repeats God's word to Moses. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So it's clear, even looking at just a handful of examples, that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New. He is a God of mercy. It is important to note, however, and and I've alluded to this, every single expression of mercy in the Old Testament points forward to the ultimate expression of mercy in the New Testament, which is the cross. Jeremy read it earlier during communion. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The proper notion of mercy, Mark Jones explains, may be understood as God first taking our misery to heart and then giving relief to the miserable. How wonderful it is to consider that in John 3.16 and in the gospel, this is exactly what is taking place. God saw the misery and distress we would one day be in because of our sins. And he didn't just see it and move on and say, oh well, let them perish eternally. Instead, your heavenly Father and my heavenly Father, he took our misery to heart. He pitied us. He had compassion on us. 
And out of the overflow of his benevolent goodness flowed rivers of redeeming mercy. The father sent his dearly beloved son into the world to die on the cross in our place in order that we might one day know and experience the joy of sins forgiven, conscience cleansed, and eternal relief from the guilt and condemnation that our sins deserved. Not only that, at some point in time, you and I, we heard the preaching and proclamation of the gospel, and according to the Apostle Paul, this is what happened. But God, being rich in mercy. Oh, I love that verse. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, that is mercy. And thankfully, God's mercy to us didn't stop at our conversion, but it continues to flow in our direction every single hour of every single day of our lives. He is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1.3 And at any point in time, we can approach the throne of grace. And what does the author of Hebrews say? We can receive mercy. Isn't that wonderful to know? That at any point, at any time of the day, no matter what you're going through, we always have recourse. What is our recourse? It's the throne of grace. Where we can come to our Heavenly Father. And find and receive mercy in our time of need. Surely A.W. Tozer was correct when he said, Forever his mercy stands, a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. Oh, that's so good. I want to read it again. Forever his mercy stands. A boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. Oh, what a merciful God and Father we have. The question is, how do we emulate His example. We're to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. How do we emulate His example? Second point, our mercy. So Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. And I submit to you that we cannot effectively emulate our Heavenly Father's example of mercy apart from a deep sense of our own personal inadequacy and spiritual need. God is amazing. He he is perfectly 
completely, absolutely merciful, and he has absolutely no room to grow. (laughs) Not so with us. (laughs) From the point of our conversion onward, over time, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, forms the character of God, the character of our Heavenly Father, the character of Christ in us, And over time, we become increasingly more merciful people. That's what progressive sanctification is all about. God's character gradually, over time, being increasingly formed in us. And the structure of the Beatitudes helps us to understand, it helps us to understand how we actually, in reality, become merciful. Spurgeon notes that these beatitudes spring out of each other as if each one depended upon all that went before. So, the character quality of mercy in verse 7 springs from the prior qualities in verses 2 to 6. Poverty of spirit, mourning for sin, meekness. And hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What is critical to notice is that each of these characteristics preceding verse 7 in our beatitude today could be subsumed under the heading of humility, inadequacy, and need. The clear implication is a disposition of mercy springs from humility of heart, and a profound sense of inadequacy and personal need. That is, the more I am humbly aware of my own sin, my own shortcomings, my own failures, and my own need to grow, my own need for the Savior's mercy and help, the more I'm aware of those things, well, the more the fundamental disposition and tenor of my heart will be compassion. And mercy towards other people. And the opposite is true as well. The more I am self-sufficient and proud and self-righteous, the more that I don't feel my own need for God's mercy and God's help, well, the more I'll be like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. I'll be proud and self-righteous and self-consumed. Not eager to help. Not eager to restore. Not eager to forgive. Not eager to show mercy to the one who has sinned. It is, dear brothers and sisters, the humble and meek person, not the self-righteous and proud, who can look upon a fellow sinner suffering from the consequences of their sin and have great sympathy. Proud people can't do that. Self-righteous people can't do that. Humble people, those who mourn for their sin as we read about earlier, those who are poor in spirit, The meek, those who know they're not righteous and so they hunger and thirst to be sanctified and holy. Those humble ones are are the ones who are able to turn around and extend mercy 
to people who need it. A humble person is able to say to their friend, their family, member, fellow church member who's, who's sinned in some way, they can say, I may or may not have sinned in the particular way you have. But regardless, I am a sinner too. And therefore, I sympathize with you. And I'm eager to forgive you. I'm eager to help you because I realize that the situation could easily be reversed. I could be the one who has sinned, needing your forgiveness and your help. Given the context of verses 2 to 6, it seems clear to me that this is the kind of attitude and tenor of heart that Jesus is calling for when he says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. You know, it's interesting to note that twice in the New Testament, Jesus citing the Old Testament prophet Hosea said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In both instances, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. He was speaking with them and making the point that God is far more concerned about his people showing practical mercy than he is mere outward, formal, religious observance. Jesus' point to the Pharisees was, you can, you, you Pharisees, you can be as outwardly religious as you want. You can, you can make as many sacrifices in the temple as you want. But if you fail to show others mercy, that that shows that in spite of your religious performance, your good outward religious performance, you're not in a good place spiritually. Apply this to the 21st century, and I imagine Jesus saying something like, so do you go to church faithfully every Sunday? Great. That's good. That's a good thing to do, go to church. (laughs) Don't stop. But just realize that even more than Sunday worship attendance, how well you forgive and forbear, and how kindly and sympathetically you treat your spouse, your children, your fellow church members, your neighbors, especially in their hour of need, will that, that says something about you, that, reveals the true quality of your character a whole lot more than even the good fact that you go to church on Sunday. Brothers and sisters, when we truly show others biblical mercy, we are living as authentic disciples of Jesus, doing what Jesus requires of everyone who follows him. We're also emulating our merciful triune God. When we are merciful to others, we are emulating our heavenly Father, as we talked about moments ago, who sent his Son to redeem us. We're emulating our Savior, Jesus, who in love gave his very life for us. And we're also emulating 
the dear Holy Spirit who applies the mercy of God to our hearts and actually rescues us out of our sins. And what's amazing to consider here is that the more merciful you and I become, the more rivers of God's own loving mercy will flow through us in every direction. To family, fellow church members, neighbors, co-workers, <laughs> everyone. The more merciful we are, we just become vessels of mercy to other people. So my encouragement is this. Let us make it our aim, by God's grace, in full dependence upon the Holy Spirit, in the days ahead, to become more merciful people. I know many of you do, in many ways, exemplify mercy, but who of us has arrived in this area? None of us. So I think as an application of the text, it's wise for us to make it a name to grow in this way, to make it our goal to become more merciful people. And if we're to grow in this way, brothers and sisters, I think it is critical that we begin with dependence on God. Because as Jesus said, we, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we're to grow in this way, if we're to become more merciful, I think it's critical that we begin with prayer by asking God, by His Holy Spirit, to humble us, to soften our hearts, to give us a deeper, more profound sense of our own personal need, and thereby make us more sympathetic and compassionate towards other people. Yet even as we pray and go to the Lord and ask Him to do a work in our hearts, We also do well to act. Within the parameters of biblical wisdom, we do well to meet others in their distress and to seek to serve or forgive or forbear or do whatever we can to help them at their point of need, their point of distress. Action is necessary. Action is necessary because as we've seen, Biblical mercy isn't truly mercy until it is expressed. Mercy biblically is not a mere feeling. It's not just something I feel. Mercy, by definition, actually isn't mercy until it is expressed towards the individual needing it. In seeking to apply this, we might consider first our marriages and our families and then Move from there to other friendships and relationships as well. For many people, probably most people, mercy is most difficult to extend to family and to those closest to us as their weaknesses, failures, and sins typically have the greatest daily impact on us. Furthermore, in seeking to extend mercy, there can often be personal offense to overcome. And that's, that's not easy. God wants to help us, but that's not easy. That said, for most, it is within the context of these familial relationships 
that we learn most what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And for that, we can be grateful to God. Most people don't think of it this way, but marriage is mercy ministry. (laughs) Family life is mercy ministry. And really, dear brothers and sisters, all of life is mercy ministry. Because God doesn't want us to apply this beatitude in isolation, just in one sphere of our lives. He wants us to apply it in every sphere. So these principles of mercy, they apply to church relationships, work relationships, reaching the lost. And so we do well to think, think about that. I told my wife and kids last night, um, I could probably preach an hour and a half this morning. You'll be glad I'm not. But I, I literally had a whole page and a half of notes of, of ways this act applies. And I just realized, okay, we don't have time for this. But it is critical that we think about it, isn't it? How, how can I be merciful at my job, right? How can I be merciful to my neighbors who don't know Jesus? And I'm starting to preach some of it now. <laughs> but the area of evangelism, just think about that, that for, for a second. I was thinking about this, and I thought, why, don't, why am I not evangelistic more than I am? And this really breaks my heart. Because if, if I'm honest and I really pinpoint it, I don't have the heart of mercy that my Heavenly Father does. And so that is why I lack in my evangelism at times. So I do think as an application of this, brothers and sisters, we can ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit. You know, do we want to see the church grow? Do we want to see people saved? Well, part of, a part of that, a big part of that is us getting the heartbeat of the Father for the lost. And us, as Jeremy was talking about during communion, having that heart that these people are going to hell if they don't repent and turn from their sins. Let's ask God to help us to weep at that reality of our our friends and relatives and neighbors who don't know Jesus, and then in love to reach out and serve them. Let's all be there at the Moyer 5K. That's not evangelism per se, but it is reaching out and showing the love of Christ and hope that we can share the gospel, either at the Moira 5K or at church. Let's all be there. Please be thinking about who you might invite to the, to the bridge course. We, I have sort of a dream that we would pack out that church office, like that we'd kind of have more people than we can handle because we are all, we, I know you have that heart of mercy I know you do. Let's ask God to give it more to us. And I know he's, he's going to continue to work. He's going to help us. God is with us, and by his Holy Spirit, he wants to help us to grow in mercy in all these ways. All right, third point. The promised blessing. The promised blessing. As with all the Beatitudes, there is a wonderful blessing connected to this call to be merciful. You can look there again, verse 7. You probably have it memorized by now. 
Blessed are the merciful. Here's the blessing. For they shall receive mercy. You may recall in Matthew 18, we find the parable of the unmerciful servant. Most of you are familiar with the story, but just to refresh your memory, a servant owed his master a large sum of money. The master then responded by ordering him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and for payment to be made. The servant responded by pleading to his master for mercy, for more time to repay his debts. And the master mercifully granted it to him. The servant then in turn went out and did the unthinkable. He demanded that his debtors repay him. And when they couldn't repay him, he had them thrown in prison, the opposite treatment that he had received. The master then called his servant and he said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The master then had the wicked, unmerciful servant thrown in jail. And said, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus shared this parable, brothers and sisters, to make the point that true disciples, authentic disciples, genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus show mercy to others. If someone is wrathful, vengeful, bitter and consistently fails to show others mercy and never, never repents of that sin, well, that reveals that that person is not a Christian in the first place and therefore they are put in jail, which is symbolic of eternal punishment and separation from God. In Scripture, not the only, but a primary evidence that someone is truly converted is that albeit imperfectly, they do in fact seek to show others the kind of mercy that they themselves have received. And wonderfully, our beatitude promises lavish, extravagant, incredible blessing on those who do just that. The blessing is the exact opposite of what the unmerciful servant received. On the final day of judgment, the mercy, the merciful, as our beatitude says, the merciful shall receive mercy. That is, on that final day, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we shall experience overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. On that day, dear brothers and sisters, on that final day, we will not receive what our sins deserve. We will not experience eternal judgment. We will not know the fiery torments of hell. But because Christ bore our sins on the cross in our place, Because he took upon himself the judgment and wrath and condemnation we so richly deserve. 
Because Christ Jesus gave His very life for us upon that tree, we shall receive the blessed promise Christ offers in this beatitude. We shall receive mercy and unending joy in the presence of God in the new heavens and in the new earth. Indeed, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Praise the Lord. O gracious God and Father, thank you for the mercy you have so generously given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I now pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would apply this word to our hearts and help us to grow in understanding and demonstrating the mercy we ourselves have received to other people. We trust you want to help us to that end. Thanks for bringing us here this day. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together.